Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. And we're back with the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast. This is episode 129. 129. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, you're back from Nicaragua. We're a few reviews closer to Nate going in the lake. Uh, tell us about the trip, man. How was it? The trip was uh, wonderful, wonderful. Anyone who is uh, familiar with Compassion International's work is knows that they're a top-notch organization, and so it was good to go down there and spend some time with the kids in Nicaragua uh, last week. Sadly, though, Josh, we have a um, conspiracy that unfolded in our very eye, own, own, own eyes um, or ears, you could say, last week while I was gone. If you're not familiar and you're new to the show, we're trying to get to 200 five-star reviews. We're currently sitting at 180. Now, if you pull it up, it says 193. That's total reviews. We're at 185 star reviews. So that means the first 20 listeners need to go and just knock that five stars out. And Nate Hansen will be in the lake the first week of January. The stickers should be in by the time back from China. So if you leave a rating and review, you can send me an email with it. I'll get you a sticker. Nate Hansen, uh, Nathan Phelps, Polar Plunge sticker. Anyways, all that. Last week, Josh, so we had a we had a conspiracy, and so I want to talk about that just briefly before we get into the show. Um, you sent. We have a little WhatsApp group, and you sent a, a notification saying that part of the show that was supposed to be edited out was left in. Now, I thought a lot about that over this week. Why would something like that happen? The thing that I think makes the most sense is that Nate knows that we're probably going to get to 200 five-star reviews. So the way to stop that, because you can't stop this quality. You can't stop this content. You can't stop the humor. What you can do is, is you know, screw up the editing. And so <laughs> then people will give us a one-star review. So, folks, I beg you, I plead with you that Nate Hansen is a conspirator. He is actively working against us. He's with the Clintons. He knows who killed Epstein. Whoa, that's please, a bit much. Please go leave a five-star review so that we can get to 200. Understand that he is actively working against us, trying to sabotage our credibility and the show. Well, I'm out of the country, mind you. You know, I wasn't in the country. Luckily for him, I was down there with these poor sweet kids who just lifted your spirits because if i'd been in country if it would you know there's no telling tasmanian <laughs> devil but i mean it makes sense josh all the facts line up i'm out of the country we have a massive blunder in the edit um we're all trying to roads get to, lead to 200 yeah all roads lead to 200 and nate tries to put the brakes on that so please 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 leave us a five-star review uh, despite nate trying to sabotage the hard work that josh and i do so ryan you say that I'm working with the Clintons, and then you tell people to lie to harm one of your adversaries? I'm not saying I wouldn't be upset if Nate died. <laughs> I'm also not saying I wouldn't be surprised. I'm just saying, I don't know at this point, you know, Nate, just watch your back. Okay, I'm just saying. It does empower, just make sure it's after, like January. Yeah, six, yeah, yeah. If you're going to bump him off, let him get in the lake first. Go ahead and hire the <laughs> Russian bots give us a five-star. So we do need five-star reviews. The stickers will be in, but when I get back from China, I will be off next week. Uh, Josh and David Blackman will be running the chair. I'm sure Nate will have a, another miraculous blunder next week. And, uh, you know, just happen to be while I'm in China, 14 hours ahead or behind or whatever. With that being said, we do have a five-star review. we got a couple in. We only have one that's written, so we can only um, – Read that out. And this is from Fatties on the Fly. Now, the irony in this is when I read this, I was in Nicaragua, and I pulled it up, and I was like, I know that name. I think I know these guys, and I do. They actually live in the same neighborhood as Josh and I do, but they didn't know who we were. I just happened to know who they were because I'd seen their stuff around and had talked with them a time or two. 
So fatties on the fly. Great work, fellas. I'm fairly new to the oil and gas business and find a lot of value in the podcast. My favorite way to get a pulse on the industry from fatties on the fly. Nate will link to some of their stuff in the show notes. Go check them out. Um, I've met them once. They were looking for a house in our neighborhood, and then um, I was out fishing another day in the river, and I saw them. And then there was one time I was out there, and they were literally – Josh, I I didn't even tell you the story. I was out there, and I was with the kids, I think, and I knew from this day what it was like for you when we went to Baffin because they were over there destroying the fish, and we weren't (laughs) catching anything. So I understood what it was like when you went to Baffin, how you were kind of the guy that catchy things. So they were there just lighting them up on the on the on the fly rod. So I kind of I kind of I almost felt bad for you. Um, I did catch more fish than my kids that day, so I didn't feel too bad. But I did understand what it was like for you those days when you couldn't catch anything and we were all just slaughtering the fish. So back to Nicaragua was a great trip though. To answer your question, yeah, you booby trapped the, uh, the fishing rods, <laughs> booby trapped the fishing rods down there. <laughs> well, I'm uh, I'm I'm gonna enjoy your trip to China for sure uh, next Monday. So. So <laughs> I hope you do, too. <laughs> well, some news came out this week. Uh, fracking pioneer Chesapeake Energy is drowning in debt. Uh, so it, it, the question is, is, will this be the last of the Mohicans? Is uh, Chesapeake at the, at the end of the line, or are they going to resurrect back to life uh, yet again? So uh, this is an interesting story to follow. They go from, you know, the very top of the industry to what appears to be on their way out. Yeah, and this is, you know, I'm looking at this morning as the time as, as of this recording they're trading at uh 86 87 cents. So for perspective, when you're in the New York Stock Exchange, if you dip below a dollar and I'm not an expert on this, but my understanding is if you dip below a dollar and you stay below a dollar for 30 consecutive days, I'm assuming that means 30 consecutive trading days, so a little bit longer than a month. You then become delisted from the New York Stock Exchange. So they have roughly 30-ish, no, less than 30 days now because it doesn't appear that they've cracked the dollar mark, best I can tell, um, to crack the dollar mark in that 30-day period. So this is a significant story because you think about you know, Chesapeake Energy, and especially back if you go back and read the frackers and back when we were working for them in the day, you know, this was, they were the king of kings. Aubrey McClendon was kind of the, the big dog out mm. there, and he was a big name and all this stuff. And to see them potentially be delisted um, is is crazy just to even think about that as, as a possibility. And so I don't know what's going to happen. I do know. I did get a message from our boy Speakner, the Prophet of Doom, <laughs> while I was in Nicaragua. Um Talking about this, and he said, I'll pull it up for you. He said, uh, in, in regards to uh, Chesapeake, he said, uh, yeah, that sounds about right. Jason is, is, if you don't know, I refer to Chesapeake as like Jason from the Jason movie because they never seem to die no matter the bad news. He said, yes, that's, that sounds about right. Jason is just about decapitated, and I have been, and I for one, have been wanting to see this as a sign to buy, buy, buy. I'm buying, but less aggressive. And he goes on to talk about other stuff, um, not really related to oil and gas. He comes back to say, back to oil. Biggest upcoming winner will be EOG and Continental Resources, Oxy in show me mode and a horrible quarter, but scaling caps, uh, uh, but scaling back capital budget 40%. Think their next quarter will show signs of life. At least I'm counting on it. Um, so he does have some kind of mixed reviews on what he's seeing there, but he's not necessarily surprised. That's one of the things he's been saying that some of these smaller mid cap companies um, will struggle, um, you know. As we move forward, and it's going to be interesting to see, Josh, as we you know, we finish out the year, Q3 results coming in for the most part. Um, the ones I've been seeing have not been overly positive. I know we got some stuff about um, EOG and Oxy, as he mentioned, you know, had a bad, had a um, kind of a, a kick in the pants. Diamondback got a kick in the pants. Um, but 
I think before we all you know kind of run to the heels, we should also remember that there's other factors that we have to consider. The um, the fact that the rig count is declining with the production. We're, you know, I'm hearing a lot about the ducks. The ducks are coming online, so the the production's staying up. So therefore, but the ducks will eventually run out. The ducks will run out. So the production numbers will eventually drop off. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that that duck theory is the right one, which means the prices got to go up. There's a report that we read in the office the other day from Raymond James talking about how it's more profitable now to put oil in pipelines because of the spare capacity. Um, they're actually getting better rates than they were before, so they can make a little bit more money there. So there's other factors that you have to kind of weigh in when you look at these stories going, okay, well, you know, is EOG going to go out of business? No. Is Oxy going to go out of business? No. Um, I know Icon was kind of upset about them, but there's other narratives that you have to follow to kind of figure out where this where this will ultimately shake out. And it's, again, a company-by-company company thing, not a um, 100% monolithic discussion on the Permian. So um, there are some other signs. I did see one other thing, and it was um, the sales tax went down in Midland uh, for the first time in two years. So you can see things like that that are showing that there are some slowdowns in the industry, but I think it's a little premature to count everyone out or to say the industry is going to die or, or some of the, the more hyperbolic things in the industry. I do think it's um, you'll have a nice little six-month window here. The end of the first quarter, we can circle this down and um, see where things are at. And if I were a betting man, I would bet that the news at that time is going to be a lot more optimistic than it is today. Mm. Well, there's an article that came out uh, on Bloomberg. Uh, EOG's fracking antidote could use a booster. Lifting the dividend could entice wary stock investors. Uh, so they, they mentioned the Diamondback uh, report. They, their production came in lower uh, than expected, and uh, their production and EOG actually came in a little lower than what they were expecting as well. But overall, EOG's, um, their returns, their cash flow has been very, very good. And, and so they, they seem to be optimistic. They didn't, um, they didn't respond with too much gloom and doom uh, from, from some of the, the lower returns this year. And like you said, Ryan, I think a lot of people are expecting the price to bump up a little bit next year. Everyone is looking at the rig count drop, and everyone is anticipating that to cause an increase in price. What no one knows is how long will it take for all these companies to drill that price back down. When the price you know, goes back over 60, which I'm you know, nearly certain it will pretty soon, is it going to be drilled right back down to the mid-50s or 50s quickly, or is it going to be a, a long, sustained, um, steady um, you know, price above you know, 55, 60 for you know, several months? That's going to be the big question, and that's also what's going to, I think, create the, uh, the circumstances which we're going to see these companies try to vie for their position. Yeah, and it, you know, to that point, it's... Um it's interesting because with all the talk for the past what year, year and a half now about, you know, focus on returns, focus on returns. I think if the price does, you know, shoot up to let's say seventy, seventy five dollars, um, you know, in a Q one, middle Q two next year as companies start to revamp their budget for the second half of twenty twenty, I think what's gonna be interesting is will you see, as you're saying, the drill down or will you see companies be more strategic? There is constant talk now from these CEOs about, you know, trying to improve uh, profitability making sure they're getting return on investment to their investors. Um, and so some of these companies will not be able to do that. And we've said that long before the Wall Street conversation ever even came up. We were saying that, hey, you know, same old analogy. If you make a couple ups on a test, you might not pass the class. So we've been kind of beating that drum for a while now. But it takes a while to go through a, 
a full year in a school, you know, or in this case to figure out if you can turn the corner. Um, so yeah, it will be it will it will be a thing. The other thing is, is the market is fundamentally different than it was back in 2013, 2014, and we have to remember that that, that things are different. There's different companies, different motivations, different strategies, and so um, again, that's part of what makes this so hard is that it's not. And I, I don't know if I used in the show, Josh, but I've been talking to people offline. And, um, you know, last night the uh, the Cowboys played the Vikings. The Cowboys lost 28-24. So Vikings win 28-24, I think, was the final score. When I tell you that information, you know basically all you need to know. Now, if you're a fantasy sports owner, you might need to know some other stuff. Or if your favorite team is the Cowboys or the Vikings, you might be how many yards does Zeke get or Kirk Cousins throw for or whatever. But that score encapsulates pretty much all you need to know. Because now you know who won, who lost – you know, you, you can look at the record. They got one more win, one more loss. But you, you know what you need to know. The news about the price going up $3 or the production going down, that doesn't tell us a whole lot. And that's what makes it so hard because we don't know how company A is going to respond to that or company B or C or D or E or F, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We don't know how they're going to respond to that. We don't know what they're thinking. We don't know how their mindset is going to be compared to a different company's. And so that's when we, when we look at this. It's not that I'm trying to make it overly complicated. I, I think I'm trying to... Um, point out to to the listeners is make sure that you're trying to uh, holistic probably the right term but the best term I can think of more of a holistic approach to the news what are the factors are you considering enough factors and how these factors apply to different companies because that ultimately will be um, how that company responds to the price going up to 60 or to 70 or whatever does does that kind of make sense Mm -hmm. and so that's the hard part with what we do on a weekly basis is we talk about the news but it's hard to really say this is what's going to happen based upon this because it's it's just not it's not twenty eight twenty four Vikings beat the Cowboys. It's there's so many moving parts and they all respond differently to that. Yeah, I think I think uh, it's going to be interesting to see from from my perspective what the uh, the constraints of living within cash flow, how, what kind of limits that's going to place on these companies. So even if the price jumped up to eighty, uh, there's still going to be limits uh, to how fast they can grow, which may bring some moderation which may cause there to be a, a bit more of a steady steady production, steady price. Uh, people may lack the means to just go um, drill at the level that they were, which could be a good thing. Yeah, well, right, but, but let's just take that for a second. Let's say that the price does jump up to 80 or 85, a high number. Um, who's to say that the big boys out there don't look at that as an opportunity to actually grab market share? What I mean by that is, you know, who's to say that, you know, um, Exxon, Oxy, you know, Pioneer, whoever, you know, three or four of the big ones really, um, you know, um, um, Concha, you know, they really say, you know what, we're going to use this to actually end the reign of some of these other companies. And they don't, they just start deploying rigs after rigs after rigs. And they drill the price down on purpose. And they drill the price down on purpose to put those other companies out of business. See, the, the, and that's my point is that we don't, I'm not saying that they're going to do that. I'm saying they're not going to do that. I'm saying that we don't actually understand what they're going to do or why they're going to do it necessarily. Um, and so... You could see it where the price does say, say it does ship to eighty, and then some companies look at that as an opportunity to actually understand that okay, all every so, you know, Ryan and Josh have the ability to deploy you know forty rigs or whatever it is, and we look at that and say you know what we're going to deploy all of our rigs to Permian and we're going to make sure that we do our part to drill the price down because we know that that uh, Nathan Hansen EMP over here they're going to struggle if the price falls down and they're putting their ba- they're putting their eggs in the basket now and they need the price to stay up so we're going to drill it down. Because we can, can we can withstand a, another bad quarter or another bad year, another bad two years. So those are the types of things that makes it very complicated to really understand um, how do you to view all these things. There are certain trends you can pick up on, certain trends you can't. But does that does that kind of make yep. sense? It's just like yep. okay, well, or the big ones might go. You know what? The price is at eighty. 
we're going to enjoy this, and we're going to try to leave it at 80, so we're not going to respond overly. And so the price could stay 80 for a long period of time because they don't respond, and the other companies don't make enough market share to drill it down. So that's a different opinion, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm, and that's very much flattening out what could happen. There's a lot of variances in there altogether. Yeah, that's uh, it's impossible to note, really. You don't know what these companies are thinking. Um and especially now because of the pressure from Wall Street. You know, a few years ago it was a little bit easier because a few years ago we understood that they were incentivized to respond by expanding the drilling program. Now that they're incentivized to make return on investment, that, that it's, it's, a, it's, a different, you know, it's a different feeling on how they're going to respond. Mm. Well, article came out. This is our, our good friend Sergio. Uh, thousands of acres sealed off following a blowout at Eagleford Shale Well. Um, this was in Dewitt County early Friday morning. Um, thousands of acres of land remain sealed off days after a blowout of a natural gas well located uh, belonging to Devon Energy between Eagle for Shell towns of Yorktown and Nordhine. Um, they had to evacuate all the rural families within a two-mile radius of the blowout. So uh, news came out, I believe, this, this was out on, what date did he, this November the 5th. Uh, so it's been a little while since this, since this took place. Uh, but an interesting story. Hopefully, no one's been injured from what I can tell. Um, I didn't look at any updates on the story. I just saw it. And yeah, I haven't seen anything either. Um, I'll be out of town, it looks like, but it looks like the, the final report has to be filed two weeks after the accident, so you guys might can access that and uh, do a quick follow-up on it. A couple things here. You know, First off, good to see that it looks like no one was hurt, best we can tell, of at least of this report. Um, but, you know, Josh, this goes back to what we say. Come out. Take responsibility. Make sure you take care of the landowners that are impacted. Um, there's no injured party, so as far as physical, so don't you know. But uh, it, hopefully, Devin will will take care of people the way they need to be taken care of, and do the right thing here, um, because there's a lot of pressure on the industry, as we know. We talk about that, you know, once a month it seems like, or twice a month, where there's you know this group wanting to shut it down, or that group wanting to do this, or you know someone's wanting to ban fracking. These are the times where you have to come out, and it's tough, but you have to come out and take responsibility. Um, you don't want to be conspiratorial and you know try to sabotage something. You actually want to you know take ownership of it. You know, we, we've seen what happens when you're conspiratorial. You you go out and you sabotage things and you make it look bad and um, you know you make an issue that's not even an issue into an issue. So I'm not calling. It seems anybody. as if we're not talking about. Oh, I'm sorry, I got distracted. I got distracted. Right. Yeah. So back to back to <clears throat> back to regular. Do schedule. your job, man. Back to regular schedule programming. But no, in all seriousness, hopefully they will uh, do the right thing, take care of it, and you know uh, make sure that. Uh, <laughs> that they uh, that they take care of the, the the people that were displaced and all that stuff in the time period. So glad to know, know that no one was hurt though. That's the most important thing. Uh, we have another story from Sergio. Targa Resources seeks to sell crude assets in Permian Basin amid third quarter loss. So Targa um, is among the large group of folks that saw a third quarter loss, uh, a significant third quarter loss. Uh, so Targa Resources are trying to sell uh, 78.6. Um, they had a loss of 78.6 million dollars, and they are looking to sell uh, some assets in the Permian in order to offset some of that, and um, I guess recoup some of the dividends for the investors. So um, Targa, Apache, uh, not to mention Chesapeake. Uh, we saw Exxon. There was a actually Sergio responded on a. Uh, LinkedIn post that that we had Ryan about Exxon's uh, quarterly report, mm-hmm. and they they were they had a pretty significant loss as well. 
Uh, I don't have that pulled up in front of me right now, but it was pretty significant. So third quarter, I think everybody's pretty much getting hammered. Yeah, and so this is this is interesting because we just talked about a minute ago the pipeline prices because there's so many. It's more lucrative for the producers because the rates are cheap, which means that if the rates are lucrative for the producers, who is it not lucrative for? It's not lucrative for the pipeline companies. And so that's what you're seeing here is that Targa, um, you know, they, they, they blame it on the low, lower commodity prices. And so I would imagine that the lower commodity prices, uh, I didn't read them go off Sergio's report here, and he does a good job. So um, he can, I think he's on next week, he might want to follow up on this. But I would imagine, um, I, I'd be curious a couple things. You'll get lower commodity prices. You have a lot of spare capacity now. Um, and then I'm curious, you know, how much commitment did they have in their open season, and did that fall through, or what was going on there? Because usually, when you talk about these larger pro, uh, these larger projects, and it looks like a corner of the map on here, they have some larger lines that you do have um, projects that are on, go under open season. They have long term contracts, so it's curious to see what all went into that and why that didn't uh, pan out like they were hoping for. But it's also not necessarily totally surprising again because if the market has shifted where the the um, it's more lucrative for the the E&P side than the midstream side, then you could see the midstream side um, try to struggle. And it could be simple as they just had a bad business unit here, Josh, and they, they overpriced themselves, and um, it's not sustainable because of a bad business decision. It's kind of hard to, to know without all the factors, but I'd be curious. Sergio, I know he listens. Um, so Sergio, yes, two articles on this show. So that's uh, pretty impressive for him. Mm-hmm. Good, strong appearance. So I'll be curious to see what he has to say next week when he comes. He is coming on next week, right, Nate? No, actually, we've got uh, Mark Lancaster on next week. Oh, oh well, no. So we will not be hearing from Sergio next week. So um, soon, though. Soon, yeah. soon. So when I get back, we'll get uh, we'll get Sergio on and uh, hear from him on what what all's going on here. But um, but yeah, so it's not not a overly surprising story from the standpoint of you can kind of see some of the stuff shake out that way. But uh, be curious who picks this line up and what they do with or these assets up and what they do with them. Yeah, I mean, from the from what I can see, most of the companies that are showing these third quarter losses, um, we mentioned some uh, a little earlier. It seems to they seem to think that next year they're going to be able to write the ship. Uh, that that what happened was basically projections were made, budgets were were created without a full understanding of how the market was going to play out. Once it played out, uh, they had to cut some of their budgets for the fourth quarter, and they're going to basically try to get things back on track in the first quarter next year with I guess a more modest budget, and they should see some better uh, some better margins. So. Yeah, and you're hearing, um, you know, you remember the Deloitte guys came on and they talked about well spacing and how that's not necessarily a problem. But of course, there's some companies that is a problem for. So I think it's, you know, it's got to, it's got to kind of, kind of shake itself out and and to see. But one of the things that's an interesting thing to 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 wonder about Josh is is the quarterly reporting system actually the most effective way to track how these companies are doing yep. you know and so if they're trying to work through problems or if they get a delay you know i think it, i think it was uh diamondback who had missed some projections it's like okay well and i haven't looked at diamondback stuff but um i think it was them who missed some production schedules it's like okay well is it something that they're that they're you know actually should be punished by a stock devaluation or you know the price goes down right now or is it something that you know okay they're they're working through problems listen here on this podcast, we have problems we have to work through. Here at R Square Global, we have problems we have to work through. And sometimes you can catch us in a quarter where there's problems we're working through that that they're fixed. And so, but if you have to report it on, you know, let's say October twentieth, and the solution's fixed November fifth, you know, you you know, <laughs> you got to wait to the next quarter to really kind of talk about it, unless you get out there and do a lot of PR. So, um, I'm not saying that 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 that's all of the problems that are tied up with some of these earnings reports, but it is. 
it is tough to sit down and, and expect um, consistent quarterly results, but also uh, I think the traders like that because they can get the market to move four times a year, at least on these stocks, whereas if the um, – you know, if the if the companies only had to report once a year, then you'd kind of, you know, have a big frenzy um, whenever that happens. So, anyways, sorry. Uh, there's a, another article from Bloomberg. Uh, after decades of fracking, we finally know how the fluid spreads underground. Um, so there's interesting article. Where, uh, recommend all the listeners that have time to check it out. There's a couple of a couple of things in there that are pretty interesting. I thought um, Schlumberger they had a, a, a quote in here that uh, fracking is employing brute force and ignorance. <laughs> so uh, it, it was interesting to see that, you know, they've been tracking how these fluids uh, move un- underground, especially the fracking fluids, and they're, they're beginning to understand that and gain a better understanding of how, um, how exactly uh, or what exactly is going on underground. So, Well, and it's funny. We have uh, the folks from Deep Imaging coming on. They're, they're quoted in this article as well. Um, it, one of the things about pieces like this that is a little bit frustrating, and and I don't know because if you, it's, it's got some pretty cool graphics, so if you, it's an article where you just kind of slide down, it got some pretty cool graphics, and so it shows a graph um, on how the um, the perfect frack, the fluid would be distributed in a regular, even increments for each stage of hydraulic fracturing. Okay, and then they show the uh, the deep imaging results of how they believe it's spread out. So. I guess my question here is, and this isn't a criticism of deep imaging necessarily, um, or the author. My question is, are we referring to a PowerPoint presentation where they had to show you this is how it works so that you can conceptually understand it, and then we're comparing it to what it actually is? Or um, because it's almost like, well, this is kind of how it was, and this is how it is. Well, I don't think anyone um, fundamentally believes that everything you do is going to be perfect and it's going to be distributed evenly because it is, it is a little bit of your, your you know, when you, when you go in there and you, and you frack, it's not, um, it's a little bit presumptuous to, to assume that everything would be evenly distributed. So I'm curious when we get the deep imaging folks on, has this been a talking point from the industry where they really pounded home that it's going to be this even distribute, uh, distribution, or is this something that, that, that the, um, you know, pioneers up, they're doing a presentation, like, okay, this is what we're going to do, and they're just making PowerPoint slides. This is how it's going to look, you know, and um, they're kind of getting getting ragged on for, for, for it not hitting that way. Does that, does that make sense? Hmm. Yeah, that is um, – yeah, I, I, I look at this, and I just wonder how accurate it is. Like you mentioned, is this a PowerPoint slide that is them giving us an idea, or is this them taking um, data that is actual accurate – representation of what's going on underground right um, and, and so i mean the deep imaging folks are probably right the question is is what was the pretext for their uh for the author's contention against what was being said I, I do want to say one more thing before we get the deep imaging folks on ironically enough is that um it does do a good job of showing you how deep the the frack is compared to the aquifer and so there's always a talk about you know the water seeping up into the to the water table and stuff like that. Uh, now they do make a passing reference about um, the water getting up there, and they don't know how far vertically it goes or whatever. I can't remember the exact quote. Um, yeah, no, I don't. I can't see the quote in the piece now. Um, yeah, the piece said that uh, they they don't have a method for tracking 3D imaging, so it doesn't have any clue as to how 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 far it's going up into certain cavities, which might run into problems with porous rocks and such, but. So my, my question on that would be is, and the deep imaging folks might have some comment on this, I don't know, but my question on that would be a couple things. One, 
Does gravity apply underground? Uh, yeah, right. It does. Correct. Gravity works underground too. Often, yeah. Yes, often. Okay. <laughs> so, so well, time or two, I've been down there. It's right. Been pretty, pretty <laughs> so, I mean, it's not a trick question. I'm saying the gravity does apply underground. So, if you go well below the aquifer and you blast in these these fluids, and it does go up. Okay. For it to go up, there's only a couple options that can actually happen. So it goes up, and then it dissolves into the rock because it's just like when you pour out a cup of water on a concrete, it just spreads out and it just kind of sits there and dissolves, right? That's option one. Option two is you could have enough to accumulate and sit somewhere. But for that to happen, it would have to go up into a hole, and the hole would have to be closed behind it, or it would have to go like over a ledge and down into another hole where it would sit because liquids go from easiest uh, the easiest spot they can, right? So it, it would seek their own level. Yes. They seek the, yeah. And so so <laughs> if it went up, it had to go up and over something and then down into something and be held there. But it's not going to con- but at that point it's not going up anymore because there's no pressure to push it upwards. The other option was it goes up and it comes back down because gravity works on the ground. Is there any other viable scenario that I can think of that would push the fluid continually up? Um, a mile or whatever the distance is, that it continually goes to the top and eventually hits the the aquifer. Because to throw this out there to say, well, we don't know, we can't measure it, it's almost kind of silly because if you can measure on some level how far it's going horizontally, to measure it vertically, you could begin to understand, well, we know that, let's just say you're putting down a million gallons um, and you feel like 75% of those gallons are being used uh, uh, horizontally, then you know that 25% of the gallons are moving vertically. I think we could have a pretty good idea of what the realistic impact of that getting to the water table is, but the article seems to not actually go through proper ways of thinking about that and just throwing out, well, we can't measure it, so therefore we don't know. Does that, does that make sense? You forget, Ryan, that frackers are secretly supervillains. Oh, okay, that, uh, yeah. They're, they're intentionally yeah, doing well, that and making it defy gravity. Okay, well, I didn't. You're, you're right, you're right, you're right. But, it don't, but in all seriousness, that, is that logic... That actually does make sense. It makes sense. So, um, so it could go up, and it could get an aquifer, but it would have to have a reason to to settle somewhere and not just come straight back down. So, um, anyways, but I just thought that was kind of it's one of those shots across the bow. I understand that they have so many words they just can't talk endlessly, but there's ways that you can phrase that where you could say, um, even though it, uh, you know we can't measure the the vertical impact of this, it is unlikely because of the way that you know fluid, some scientific word about whatever works here some smart listener can fill me in but does that make sense i I think it's pretty simple even for us simpletons who complain a lot and mumble can understand and for commies like josh yeah one of the things one of the questions i have is how the um when the water gets into some of these rocks um how does the rock hold the moisture um you know as far as like you mentioned gravity pulling the rock pulling the, the water down uh, the, if the pressure pushes it up and it saturates a rock, um, unless it's absorbed, it's going to come back down, or it's held by some kind of. Uh, if the rock, the rock is porous and it has all these caverns in it, you know, sure. uh, it, the, the water could be held in there. And so that that but, was kind of my idea. Sure, but at that point, it's not going to be higher. Mm-mm. You'd have to have another pressure Pressurized to, system. system to push it up, and that would have to, so that, that that's peak, and that's my point, is that wherever it peaks at, if it's held there, it will not go any higher, and so then you can say, well, what's the likelihood, and I'm, I'm, again, some engineer somewhere can probably do this math, that, you know, once you do the frack, um, you know, how much pressure would it take to get that liquid through the rock where it's not being absorbed and all this stuff, and so I, I think it's probably, again, not an engineer, 
this is simpleton, but I think it's probably something that uh, can be done or has been done. Truth be told, probably uh, these companies have done some of these studies. So, well, today we have a guest, Josh Eula, Chief Development Officer with Deep Imaging Technologies. Uh, he's joining us on the show today. Josh, great to have you, man. Hey, well, thank you for having me. You know, it's it's funny. We were just talking. It kind of worked out this way, or maybe uh, Josh Shelton planted this way. I'm not sure, but we were just looking at a piece from Bloomberg um, that you guys are quoted in um, about um, you know fracking and the fluids and how they're distributed underground. And it, it, it seemed interesting because um, a, a couple of things um, we were talking offline. So I know you're somewhat familiar with the piece, but I'll kind of bring it up again for the listeners' standpoint. Is they it's a pretty cool graphical piece because they have uh, different it's not slides but it's basically like slides in there that show you how the frac uh, fluid is distributed underground um, horizontally and then they kind of make a, a passing reference about you know vertical and we'll talk about that in a second um, one of the questions that Josh and I had was you know they show it and they kind of show it being presented as perfect um, it's perfectly it should have been perfectly distributed, or they were led to believe it would be perfectly distributed. And then you guys have gone in there and said, well, it's not being perfectly distributed. It's actually kind of in patches, and if the listeners go pull up the article, they can see that. So I guess just from a standpoint, can you walk us back through um, the industry when they were talking about fracking and how these fluids would be distributed and stuff? Was it real? Was it a serious conversation of it's going to be even distribution, or was it more of they had to present something, and so they're trying to present it in a way to communicate information because that was kind of a question that Josh and I had. Like, well, they pro- it seemed like you're probably just saying, hey, this is what we're going to do. Here's some slides. This is kind of how it will look. And then now that you guys are finding this information, it's not that you're being contradictory. It's just kind of clarifying what the original tent was. Or would you say, no, the original tent was to distribute the fluid equally, and they're not able to do that, and that's a problem? Yeah, that's, a, that's an incredible question. I'm really happy the way you worded it. Uh, I get asked something like this very similar most of my days. But the way you word it is, is, is really appropriate. So if you step back and look at essentially frack modeling to date, most of those frack models end up showing a pretty uniform bi-wing fracture moving out and then going to the next stage in the same thing, showing that uniform stimulation. So going to your question, uh, is this kind of just for easy clarification or is this something that we actually believed was happening? Maybe it started out as an easy clarification and something that we could kind of build a model around. And then we embedded it into our models because we built a reality around expecting it to do what we had expected. Uh, but when you when you do look at frac models, when you look at what we predicted was going to happen, it's a relatively uniform stimulation, which is where you build your development strategies off of. Once you know how far fluid goes out, you can build a dense development. You can figure out how, you, how many wells you can put into your reservoir to, to optimize your, your production. Uh, so I would say that in general, the industry believed it was a relatively uniform stimulation. But what, what I've encountered since I started presenting the real results, and, and the image of the actual fluid placement in the Bloomberg piece is real data from the Anadarko Basin. That's a real well that was that was treated that we monitored. That's what we see every single time. And so on my day-to-day when I'm talking with clients, I get to have a lot of aha moments where a completion engineer will kind of stand up from the back of the room and say, I knew that was happening. I just couldn't prove it. None of the models showed it. But dang it, I knew it was going to be that asymmetric and that chaotic. And and so I think we're really kind of shedding light on what's actually going on down the hall. Right. And one of the, industry, one of the problems this industry faces is, is that if you were – 
putting together a model simulation for how a plane will take off, fly across the country and land. Um, you can put together the models, and then you can actually put the plane out, and you can actually observe the plane take off from New York, fly across country, and land in Los Angeles, and you can observe all the things that go along. Here, because we are working deep beneath the surface, um, we can have some theories of what we think may be going on, but it's a lot harder to prove and to figure out what methodologies are, are the best way to, to monitor these um, these simulations. And so it, it seems like um, you have some folks in the field who kind of have that gut feeling, but it's, it's, it's like, well, how do we track this? And, you know, what technology do we do, do we use? And then the other part of that is for a company like yourself, it's probably hard to convince the, you know, you have the guy in the field who believes that something is not like it should be, but then convincing someone in a different department that they should spend their resources on it to prove it is two different conversations altogether, I would imagine. Oh my goodness. Yes. Uh, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, I mean, the second part of your question there is what every technology entering into oil and gas faces is that we cost money and that we're relatively new and, and probably changing some kind of belief system that already existed up there. And so not only do you have to onboard a new technology, but you have to onboard a new business decision as well. And that's, that's a huge, huge uh, hurdle to overcome. Uh, but going back to your first part of the question, which, which is really powerful, is that we can't excavate at 10,000 feet. So no one can go down there and dig up the rock, have a gander at where they put fluid, where they put propane. And so, like you said, it's kind of like doing surgery in the dark. Uh, well, the analogy my, my CEO always uses is that we built this huge high-tech manufacturing facility, and we forgot to turn the lights on. And so we're doing it all off touch and feel and vibes. Uh, right now, there are technologies deployed that mo- monitor bits and pieces of it, like micro seismic can see rock breaking. Tracers can tell you which fluid made it to another well or where you placed profit near the well bore. And it's almost like the blind men and the elephant. You know, they're all checking different parts of that elephant out, but no one's getting the full vibe. And we're in the same. We're we're telling you where fluid has made it. Uh, we're not showing you absolutely everything. And I don't think there is a technology out there that is a silver bullet. But for sure, I, I think we're offering a new perspective and a new viewpoint on a very challenging problem, especially when you're dealing with a parent-child interaction. Okay. And, and I think... One, I think one more question on this piece, and we'll talk about some other stuff. But um, we're, you know, there's a kind of a throwaway line in this article about you can't measure um, the, that you guys or whomever the industry cannot measure the vertical impact of, of these fluids. And I kind of went through the the, the possibilities because it, it, I, you guys can confirm that gravity does work underground, correct? That is a fact. Gravity still works beneath the surface. <laughs> gravity okay. okay, gravity does. does exist okay, gravity under, exists underground. So if you kind of believe that to be true, then um, the vertical integration, uh, the vertical impact of these fluids can only be a handful of things, and those could be. Um, I use an analogy of if you took a cup of water and you throw it on the concrete. Um, it's not that concrete's a very absorbent um, su- surface. Uh, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, uh, material, but you know, if you throw, throw it, yeah, yes, that porous, right? But it, if you throw out one cup of water, it will it will absorb that and take it. Um, so you could have that impact if you're putting stuff vertically. The other thing I said was is that if there is a pressure to push a fluid vertically, um, once that pressure stops, it's going to come back down. The third thing would be is that it could go vertical, but then it could find a a spot to to settle in. Um, but once it settles there, it will not go vertical again because gravity, as you've confirmed for us, thank you for that, does work underground. So. Um, with that being said, these throwaway lines that really bug Josh and on the show are stuff like that because, like, well, we don't know what the impact is. And, and, and I don't know if you guys – I know you from this article it seems that you all can't measure that. But let me ask it this way. 
because my question ultimately ultimately was with that throwaway line from the Bloomberg piece was, do we know what percentage of the fluid is being put out horizontally? Because if we knew that, we said, well, 75% of this is being uh, dispersed east and west, for lack of a better term, then you could begin to understand what potential fluid would be going north and south, and then you could kind of start running some loose models and figure out that it's probably not getting up to the aquifer level. So um, do, you, do you guys have any um, insight on that or comment on that that could be helpful for the audience? Yeah, so, uh, uh, so so many thoughts around that. So the Bloomberg piece was referencing more or less the deep imaging technologies, my company. Uh, we do not have a height component. So we, we observe spatially X, Y, north, south, east, west, where fluid is moving. Uh, inverting for a, a height component is something that's on the on the track it's down the road. We're working in our R and D land on it, uh, but it is something that matters. And so, when you're trying to constrain the essentially the elephant that I was referencing earlier, you probably need more than one technology if you care about height component. You want something that can can measure that change in the, in the vertical. Uh, and going back to your question about gravity, you know, it's almost like an inverse in the depth because we're dealing with buoyancy at that point, which is still driven by gravity. But your frac fluids, if they're less or more dense than your, your, you know, if you're in a water-rich system or a hydrocarbon-rich system, which way they're going to go? It's, just, you know, there's a lot of things at play. So I, I think height matters for sure. I think that if you can get some rules to say that it went out 75% laterally and 25% up, then you can start to constrain the model. But I would say that those rules don't exist yet. I, I, what all that I've learned from looking at deep imaging data is it depends. I think the rock has a big driving factor here, and the depth, and, and, and everything to do with the treatment are all variables that will change that. Okay, so let me ask, uh, this will be the final question then. Um, generally speaking, how far out is this, because you can uh, measure uh, horizontal roughly, how far out is this mm-hmm. horizontal? Because if we took that and we said, well, it's a horizontal, uh, you can measure, you know, it's 100 feet across or 1,000 feet across or 10 miles across, you could make a, um, you could use that as a radius and then determine theoretically how far up and down it went. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I do. Uh, so yeah, I figure it's spatially where it went. It's not an oval by any means. It's flawed. Sure, right, right. Uh, but then you can mass, mass balance it with how much fluid you put in and your estimation on port space, uh, 100%. So in, in, in that kind of same vein, uh, we've seen cases where fluid's only made it out a couple hundred feet. Mm. And we've seen cases where fluid has made it over half a mile away. We're actually at a job right now in Wyoming where we're seeing, we're seeing hits onto a well very far away. Uh, repeatedly, mm-hmm. and the fluid making it there very readily, just running away on them. And and that's going to be due to um, you know rock type and other factors, correct? Well, yeah, it's it's rock type. It's it's available space. It's parent well uh, depletion. Maybe not fluid depletion, but stress depletion. Uh, and then it, it also comes down to your stress shadow, and you're building up a stress regime. And so that fluid's just fluid. Fluid is very simple. It's not playing any games with you. It's going path of least resistance every time. Right. And so if it's going over there, that is the path of these three systems. Josh, you mentioned uh, Diamondback a little earlier, how there was an operational uh, issue and not a, a, a reservoir problem. There was a Concho. They, they had a report that came out earlier this year where uh, they had space too close together and therefore they had diminished returns. Uh, so what, what are you seeing uh, in reference to those two companies and what the operational issues are um, currently? Yeah, so uh, I think that's just where we exist as an industry right now. I think Concho and Diamondback are being very transparent about where they are, but I think the whole industry is facing the same problem. And, and I loved Diamondback's uh, CEO quoted that this isn't a reservoir problem, this is an operational problem. Mm-hmm. 
and, and I sat there and I thought about it for a little bit because we know we're only getting 10, 12% of the oil out of the ground on a good day. So for sure the oil's there. It's just a matter of being clever in how we get it. Uh, the one thing I think that we face as an industry is that we call it an operational problem. And then when we get new technologies that will help fix that, we call them technologies. Mm-hmm. And technology has a sour taste in everyone's mouth. Like, oh, that sounds expensive. It sounds like something new. It sounds like something that might not work. I'm going to stick with what I know. Uh, operationally, I'm going to run what I know. But I think if we can break down that barrier between operations and technology and say, like, technology is just literally trying to be a smarter screwdriver, a more clever hammer, something that's a little bit better of a lever that's going to get more of those hydrocarbons out of the ground. And I think if our service companies can take that attitude, too, that we're not just going to be on science wells, we need to make essentially the whole fleet run better. I think that's going to be the step change that we need. Uh, the hydrocarbons is there for us to get. We know that we can get it because we have wells that are boomers and they produce great. It's just a matter of figuring out what variables are hurting us and kind of wrangling those a little better, I think. We've talked about this a handful of times on the show now. I think David Blackman was the first to mention on the show. Um, but there's there's been some discussion about, and, and the Deloitte report seemed to uh, reflect David's comments on some level, um, and his comment essentially was is that when you're dealing with you know horizontal wells and fracking, that the expertise of the of the of the team is far more important than maybe it is in conventional wells. Um, so, in, obviously, not asking you to divulge, you know, clients or anything like that. But from from y'all's perspective, how much does that play into? Can you go into an office and and, and tell that you know this this company's team is really well ran? They understand the issues, they understand how to drill these wells, and this team over here, um, because you can kind of hear the comparison and thought, they they think they may understand it, but they're not really experts in doing this, and that's part of the problem. So like, like you started with, I'm not going to give away any names or anything, obviously, uh, but 100% yes. Uh, so I started my career at ExxonMobil, and I was on the operator side, and I got to see kind of, you know, the whole side of conventional and a little bit unconventional. I did some, some fun stuff with some unconventional, but I got to see the operator side. Then I jumped over to the service side, and I was a little apprehensive uh, to be jumping on the uh, service side because, you know, it feels like maybe it's going to get stepped down, maybe it's not going to be exciting, but... It's been probably the most fun I could have had to be able to see what hundreds of operators are up to and essentially, you know, be their pain therapist, be able to talk through what they're suffering through, help them try to alleviate that pain and, and make things work better. But through that, I've been able to talk to, like I said, hundreds of operators. And, and dang it, yes, you can walk into a room and probably within 15 to 30 minutes, you have a good vibe for what the problems that they're facing, whether they're human problems or reservoir problems or technology problems or operational problems. Uh, pretty readily. Yeah, and I, I would say this, um, just to piggyback on that, we don't deal at r Global in the same spot that you are, but we can tell, um, you know, we can go from company to company that we work for, and it's pretty apparent to us which of the companies um, have, you know, good management in place, their projects are going to be ran a certain way, um, you know, versus companies that, that aren't going to be in that same boat. Uh, and so it, it, we can see that as well from outside. And I think sometimes... Um, what what is frustrating as on the vendor side of things is it's not that we have a better understanding necessarily of the business that the clients in they they know their business they understand the internals the numbers but we do have mm-hmm. different knowledge than they have because we do see things that they don't see and 
Um, you know, one, one thing I would kind of point to on that is if you listen to people like, I like you sports now, I just kind of like sports, but if you listen to coaches and sports talk, uh, especially NFL coaches, one thing they'll say is that when they're in a season, they are so dedicated to watching their team and fixing their team's problems and worried about their opponents that they really don't have a good picture of other trends that are going on in the season with other teams because they just don't have the time to stop and focus. Whereas someone who's a dedicated analyst who's watching all the teams mm-hmm. all the weeks, they can see, oh, wow, with this formation is really running well against this type of uh, this you know uh, this type of defense or, or whatever it may be. And it seems like in our industry, if you to bring it back here, we have that same type of problem where these companies are trying their best, they're doing good work, they're trying to do good work, but they have a very limited uh, view uh, vantage point to understand uh, better ways. And that's why the vendors are so important in this industry because we do have uh, access to things that they just don't have access to. No, I definitely agree with that. I, in that analogy, for sure, the service companies here are the analysts, along with the analysts. They're doing a great job, too. But the service companies get to be in the trenches through all these decision-making processes. Really, you know, a really good service company that becomes a partner with their client, they get to go through the highs and lows and, and, and see everything, see a project all the way through to a business decision change. And, and you're exactly right. Like, you're doing that with multiple clients, and you're able to see generally what the entire industry is up to and what's working and what's not. And so... You know, sometimes you'll walk into a room and you'll hear something. You're like, oh, no, I already know the end of the story. I know how this ends. So let's just go a different <laughs> path here, guys. Right. And you right. feel like you're like a future seer. It's kind of nice. <laughs> right. So final question for you, and then we'll plug the website and everything you guys have going on. Um, Josh and I were talking okay. earlier, in the, earlier in the show, which was, um, you know, the, the production. The, the rig count's falling. The production at some point has to fall. Depends on the duck stuff and all that. But let's just say, you know, next year it feels like the price has to go up, barring a major recession. With that being said... Um, we, we talk a lot of the show about there's no monolithic way to view the industry because each company has its own motivations. But there, there has been a lot of pressure from Wall Street um, to make sure that the publicly traded companies are getting returns for investors. Are you guys seeing now mm-hmm. that that pressure is being manifested um, in a way that if the price does jump back up, that um, a certain portion of the industry will say will respond more cautiously than they have in the past and make sure that they are using technologies like you guys have and they're not just going out there and trying to drill wills to expand their drilling program. I think 100% yes. I, I think, yeah, I, you know, we were at Evercore up in New York there uh, with James West, uh, I guess, a month ago. Actually, David Moore was just in, a, in another podcast with James West this morning, so it was super cool. Uh, and that's what the conversation was about, that James West was predicting the oil price is going to creep back up to you know, more than it is now. And he said that with that, he still didn't expect that we would see you know, all that big boom of a whole bunch of rig count, the people are going to be more clever and step into it more cautiously this time around. I, mean, I think that's the right move. I think, you know, don't just spend it because you got it, but let's let's be wiser and try to get more of those hydrocarbons into the ground. I think that's, that's what we will see. Yep. I know I said last question, but I do have one more thought about it. You mentioned Diamondback earlier. Um, for, for, for We have some investor types that listen to the program um, that aren't maybe necessarily field hands uh, or folks that are kind of in the industry like we are. For them, you mentioned Diamondback saying we have a uh, res- we have a production problem, not a, a reservoir problem. Um, and we were, Josh and I were talking before about, you know, this quarterly reporting sometimes is damaging because you, you're working on an issue and you have to turn in your quarterly report. Um, and, you know, you might fix the issue, you know, three weeks or a month later. And the next thing you know, you, you can't talk about that for another three months and your stock price took a hit. Just real quick – if, if, if um, you know, uh, Josh and Ryan, E&P, called you guys in today and we said the same thing Diamondback had, 
what's what's a normal sales cycle? Not for you guys to start getting us information, but what's a normal sales cycle for you guys to come in and start working with these companies? Um, and then once you make a sale uh, or you get brought on or however you guys phrase that, what is then, how long does it take to deploy your technology and then bring those results back? And then the final part of that is, how long does it take for them to actually begin to um, use that data to have better results. So walk those phases for us for the people who are kind of more of the investor types or just generally curious, because if you are bringing in a technology like you guys, I'd imagine it's not, hey, we're bringing you guys in today. First time we meet you, we're going to hire you. Then tomorrow you run your tool. And then on Thursday, we've got our drilling program running at 100%. I would imagine it's probably a little bit longer process than, than three to four days. If you, you know, you, you know probably, probably a few months if I had to guess. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely longer than three or four days. Now, uh, in an ideal world, uh, just the way that we built our company, if we were to get a proposal signed today, let's say I ran, let's say I walked in the company X and I said, hey, you know, here's what we do. And they're like, yeah, we could be out collecting data within a week. Okay. Uh, that's not hard for us. Our whole field footprint is just stakes in the ground and boxes on the surface. So it's, it's, it's very light. Uh, it's kind of like the same impact as surveying. So that's pretty easy. Then we just acquire data while you're uh, fracking, and then it takes us, you know, a few weeks to get you the results. That's today. Uh, so then, if if we were doing a look back sense, we'd look at what happened, we'd change some business decision, and then we go and observe the next one, and slowly trickle through that, you know, grade seven kind of scientific process of testing a hypothesis by changing one variable. Mm-hmm. So so that's where we exist as a company right now. It's it's relatively quick. The adoption cycle is a little slower with larger companies, right? Because they'll have electromagnetic experts that will want to vet that technology, which is completely reasonable. Sure. Like I said, I worked at Exxon. It makes big companies have lots of experts that should be doing that. Uh, the step change we're about to have in January is that uh, we'll be able to offer our results with a five-minute turnaround. Oh, wow. So as you're fracking, you'll be able to watch, oh, I'm having a plug failure. Oh, I have bad cement. Oh, I'm about to have a frack hit. And you can actively do something about it. Now, a lot of companies that are larger have said, uh, you know, even if I see it, I've got my plan. I'm going to stick to it. And, and I've heard that a lot. Uh, smaller companies are like, no, I'm going to stop a bracket. If I see one, I'm going to do something if a plug fails. Uh, but my experience is that normally once they see the data and they, if they see it coming in and they do see a plug failure, they can't very well look the other way. Mm. Now something has to be done. Mm. And so I think that's going to be essentially the whole tipping point for the industry is that our technology and a few others will become operational, will become real time. And uh, we'll actually change the way we frack on the fly. And I think having that visceral feel of, of changing something as it's happening and fixing the problem as it you know, kind of presents itself, that will be a big step change for everything. Well, that sounds fantastic. We need to get you on maybe end of Q1 next year to kind of see how that's progressing and how the industry is responding. But long story short, it seems like, you know, even if you guys, the sales cycle might take uh, whatever the time is, but then you guys get in, it's, you know, a few weeks a month to kind of get results. But as you mentioned, it's kind of a a test and see and test and see and test and see. I'm sure you guys could probably give some guidance because of historical data and understanding. But, but essentially, you know, it's, it's um, you know, when you're working on this quarter by quarter publicly traded information, um, you guys could be working on this problem, and you know it could take the the uh, the producer, you know, three, four, five months or whatever it might be to um, to fix it as as it's been historically. But moving forward, it should be faster. That's great to know. Okay, deepimaging.com is the website. Deepimaging.com is the website. Where else can people connect with you? Where can they find you? Or y'all got conferences or anything else you want to plug or promote while we have you on here today? Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, uh, so like you said, deepimaging.com, uh, fun fact, if you want to see our secret website, deepimaging.com slash RTT, we'll show you a trial of what real time looks like. 
Uh, it's not. There's no link to it. So you have to go to deepimaging.com slash RTT. Can we link to that in the show notes? Uh, we're going to be at HF. Can we put that link in the yeah, show notes? Yeah, go okay. for it. Yeah, we'll, put the, we'll put that link in the show notes. For That'd be awesome. Morning. Okay. Uh, beyond that, uh, we are speaking at AAPG Difficult with uh, Unconventionals. I think this week in the Woodlands, we were at the Refrag Conference in San Antonio last week with the SBE. We're going to be speaking at the HFTC in the Woodlands in February. Uh, oh, my goodness. There's a, there's a few other ones out there, but uh, also maybe people can put their ear out and listen for James West and David Moore's podcast that came out this morning. It was pretty, uh, pretty eye-opening as well. Okay, good deal. Well, we will link to the website and then the super secret website that you have on <laughs> on uh, in the show notes, and then people can. It looks like I'm sitting right here. You have a contact at the bottom of the page, so they can sign up and probably get email notifications about what you guys going on. It's super exciting stuff. I'm glad we get you on here today. It's a timely message for where we're at in the industry, and I wish you guys the best of success because it feels like this is one of those technologies that can um, that can really help. Um, not just with the efficiency, but also help the messaging that gets out there to the industry um, for those folks who are always, you know, critical of us and what's going on. We can kind of actually say this is what we know is going on, whether they, whether it's right now it's kind of like, well, we think this is what's going on. So, um, so we are thankful for that. So, thank you so much for coming on today. It was a pleasure. Hey, thank you for having me. I really appreciate you guys uh, giving me this opportunity. Big thanks to Josh Ula, uh, Deep Imaging Technologies, coming on the show. Uh, a lot of a lot of interesting takes from him. Uh, really enjoyed having him on today. We have uh, Texas Roundup. We have a couple of, a couple of pieces of news that came out that I want to hit on real quick. Equinor uh, sells its assets at U.S. Eagleford to Repsol for $325 million. Hopefully I didn't butcher those names. Uh, too many French-German names in here. Kinder Morgan completes acquisition of South Cross Energy Assets. That's a name I can say, Kinder Morgan. <laughs> uh, so they're, uh, they got a pipe, pipeline. Is that the Tejas pipeline? <laughs> Is that the Tejas? It's Tejas, actually. Tejas? I'm not weighing in on this. I'm going to let you guys mess it up. So. Well, why would there Spanish, French, German... Ukrainian. It's a national business. Right? I would have said Tejas myself, but we'll get we'll, 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 we'll get we'll get crucified by the Southern South Texas listeners from somebody's going to so. get on me. Get, get mad at Josh, please. Uh, so they're selling their pipeline for seventy six. Uh, no, they completed a seventy six million dollars acquisition of the South Cross Energy Natural Gas Pipeline. So two uh, two pieces of information. There was one, one more, Josh, real quick. You didn't, I didn't. I forgot to tell about this. Um, Iran, Al and I will be talking about this. Iran announced um, they discovered fifty billion barrels of oil. So we talking about that. And so, um, what's the implications, and is it trustworthy or not? On this week Energy Week podcast, also the Aramco IPO. So if you're interested in that, Ellen and I, we talk about those things and Dr. Dean Foreman with the API. So um, a couple of things we talked about on the show before last week, talked about the, about the uh, lack of new discoveries. Now the Iranian thing has its own spin on it. We can talk about that, but, and the, and the Aramco IPO. So those things will be on energy week podcast um, today. So if those are of interest to you listeners, uh, I know we had someone mention that somewhere. So we will be talking about those. Awesome. Look forward to that. Um, Rating review, five-star or higher, would be accepted. We were 20 away. So the first 20 of you that download this podcast, and let's assume you're one of the first 20. Just assume you're one of the first 20. That's a safe way to do it. Go and leave a rating and review, five stars or higher. Um, do not let Nate's sabotage um, ruin this for you. Um, if you're part of the first 45, you should also give a five-star rating and review. The first 20. The first, first 45. 20 is, 20 is If we get those 45, 20 is great. these two gentlemen have to go in great. with me. 20 is great. 20 is great. 
There's no sight more beautiful in the world than a wet Ryan. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So, anyways, I will be off to China. LinkedIn, if you want to connect with me, I would love to connect with you there. Nate will leave that in the show notes. And until next time, thank you for tuning in and keep climbing.